Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. Please excuse the absence of a pithy and winsome introduction. We're going to move right into the text and right into the message this morning. Um, there's so much to cover. There's so much that's good here. And I'm hoping that we'll have a little bit of time for some prayer and reflection at the end. We're at the beginning stages of our series on 1 Corinthians. Our, our sermon this morning is called Christ and Him Crucified. Our sermon series title is A Perfect Savior for an Imperfect Church. And, um, and our slide should say, title slide, next slide, should say, someday it'll say it. It should say, there it is, Christ and Him Crucified. That's actually our, our first point this morning. But we're, we're in this, this uh, first stages of this series and a couple of weeks ago we opened it up with this message about this introductory message and we considered in that message God's amazing grace for a church with amazing struggles and the big highlight takeaway for me and I hope it was for you was that despite all these struggles grace was promised to them and by extension grace was promised to us despite all their stumbling Paul gives this amazing promise in the beginning of the letter. He will confirm you guiltless to the end. God is faithful. And despite all my struggles, despite your struggles, despite all of my sin and your sin, God gives this amazing promise. I will confirm you guiltless to the end. God is faithful. And my hope is that as we go through this series, we'll keep this promise before us. As we work through this book, through all the ups and downs of of this church in Corinth, and we reflect on our own personal lives with Jesus, our struggles as a, as a church body, um, that, that for me, my, my deep struggles with the things in this book, whether it's, you know, temptations in my heart to not love and, as I should, or purity, or what's really treasuring, what's really being treasured in my heart, as I, as I see this book engage me and open up my heart and examine my heart and bring conviction and bring God's questions to my heart that I would keep this promise before me. He will confirm you guiltless to the end. God is faithful. And I pray the same thing for you, that, that, that you would be able to receive from this book in that larger context of his promise, that he's faithful. He will keep you guiltless to the end. So that grace would root us and allow us to move forward in these things. That was kind of the first message's intention. And then last week, Andrew began to unpack this section that we're in right now. He told us about the divisions that had cropped up around various leaders. And at the heart of that section about divisions that continues through today is this question of of what the Corinthians valued. What they really treasured. And, and today, Paul's concern is still going to be this question of what they're really treasuring, what they're really valuing. And he's going to talk about, last week, as Andrew dealt with divisions, he talked about it in the context of certain people. But this week, Paul's going to talk about it in a, in a, in a newer category, this category of, of wisdom. And he's really going to hit that hard as we look at this message today. But it really boils down to this issue of treasuring. What you value, what, what's most precious to your heart. And my prayer is, as, I, as, as this text 
Lord willing, it worked on my heart, and I think it did work on my heart, and it called me to account for things. My prayer is that we'll be made aware once again in a life-giving way, in a life-giving way about what's most important, about what's most worthy of our heart's affection, what's most worthy of our greatest treasure. That's what I'm hoping, that today the Holy Spirit will do a renewing work on my heart concerning what's to be treasured above all. And that he'll do that same renewing work in your heart. That, that we be given this spiritual renewal and strength and hope through the simple preaching of God's word from an, a fallible uh, preacher. But that God will work around that. So if you've come hungry and longing for a renewal of God's work through the Holy Spirit, that's what I'm praying for, for, for me and for you this morning. And I'm, and I'm going to put my faith in the Lord that he is able to do that. He is worthy of doing that. And he is willing to do that for us this morning. If you've come full of love for Jesus and his gospel and you feel like you, you're flowing, I, I hope you'll walk out still that way and even more so. But I am longing for a fresh pouring of God's grace to work in my heart today. And, I, and, I, and I'm sure many of you are too. So let's just pray for that before we go further anymore. Oh Lord, how I need you. How I need you, Lord. And I, I think I can speak for other brothers and sisters here. How much we need you. To cause us and help us and strengthen us to treasure what you treasure. To value what you value. Above all. God, as I look through this passage this week, I was freshly convicted of how impossible it is in my own strength to treasure and value you as I should and how impossible it is in my own strength to keep you there, treasured and valued above all things. And I, and I know, I think, Lord, that, that is a common experience for your children in this room as well. And so, Lord, would you come and wash our feet once again? You told Peter... Peter, you've had a bath. You're clean already. You just need to have your feet washed. Lord, you've saved us. We're, we're saved. We're righteous. We're justified in Christ. But we still need to have our feet washed. Would you come, Lord, and do what you've done so many times in our lives? With your humble, loving spirit, would you wash our feet once again? Would you renew us in strength and renew us in hope? I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Okay, so let's get right to this text, okay? We're going to start in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, right before where Andrew left off last week. And we're going to, we're going to take it a section at a time. I'm going to read 2 through 5, and then we'll talk a little bit about it, and so on and so on. The next section, and so on. This first section I'm terming, nothing but Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing 
among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Verse 1 and 2, Paul says, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, remember last week, Andrews reminded us that these folks were dividing themselves among favorite leaders, really favorite speakers. And it wasn't wrong that they felt blessed by particular leaders, but they were exalting these leaders above Jesus. And, and they were exalting themselves above each other as they pinned up against certain leaders. And, and it, it was leading to division. And in this section, Paul moves away from the issue of particular leaders. He'll get back to that later. But he gets to this heart of this, of this metric, this standard or rule that they were using to assign and decide on their favorite leader. So they had their favorite leader. But why did they have their favorite leader is what Paul's addressing right now. And, and this issue is one of, of speech and wisdom and this it's something that at first is going to be hard, I think, for many of us to relate to. Because we don't really think of it a lot. But in Paul's day in Corinth, a major category of life was this thing called rhetoric. One dic- dictionary defines it this way. The art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing, especially using figures of speech and other compositional techniques. I really think it's something we, we hardly... I hardly ever think about this consciously today. But... Actually, before the turn of the century, before the turn of my century, the 20th century, in the 1800s, people used to care a great deal about it. We might read the words of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, and we'll come away noticing there was a certain rhythm to it. There was a certain beauty to it. Not just the content, but the way the content is presented. Some of you might remember John F. Kennedy's public speeches. I love John F. Kennedy's speeches. I mean, I just could listen to his press conferences, but I could really listen to his... I actually, I'm a nerd. I have some of John F. Kennedy's speeches, like on my iPhone. He had this way with words, you know. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Let the word go forth to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. Era. I mean, he could say the same things that other people said, but when he said them, there was a beauty and an order and a poetry to it. I remember a seminal moment in my political consciousness was watching George Bush and Hate Me or Love Me. I liked George Bush. uh, George W. Bush next to Tony Blair at this common, you know, press conference. And Tony Blair is all like, the challenges before us are great and numerous, but with vigor and fortitude... And a common sense of decency and hope. We can overcome those challenges. And I was like, oh, yes, we can. I don't know what the challenges are, but we can overcome them. Who are you? And yes. And then they passed over to George. And George is like, yeah. We're going to stand our ground. We're going to get them. Stand our ground. And I was like, why can't I have the English president? That guy. So this issue of speech and and wisdom that came through eloquent words and techniques, it's hard to us to relate to, but it was a huge, huge day in Paul's day among the Greek people. 
It was entertainment. It was inspiration. It was a guide for life. It was a measure of your worth. If you followed the right speaker, you were the right person. It was also a profession. So it was a lot at stake here. Jobs were to be found. Money was to be made. Followers were to be gained on how well speakers could debate like boxers. You had Don King. (coughs) You had Don King like speaker owners, you know. They list techniques and get into the ring with each other and do these powerful, beautiful debates. And it's this standard of rhetorical speech-making excellence that's being applied to these gospel preachers, to Paul and Apollo and Cephas and Corinth. And so Paul did this crazy thing. When he came to Corinth, he made this decision. Folks were so caught up in the techniques of speaking that Paul decided he would intentionally tone down his rhetorical abilities. Because Paul was very well taught and he was quite eloquent. And at other times in the book of Acts, you'll see he'll use that eloquence depending on his audience. But in this case, he was so concerned that folks not fall in love with him and his rhetorical ability, but rather they treasure the gospel, that he turns it down. Because he doesn't want to be the attention getter. He wants Jesus and his gospel to be the attention getter. In fact, Paul even reminds them that not only was he not spectacular glitzy in his presentation, he was a mess. Look at verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. We gloss over those words like many of us are just used to hearing them, but they were Paul was serious. He was afraid. He was trembling. He felt weak among them. Why was this? Well, if we do a little bit of work in the previous chapters of, of Acts, now Acts 18 is the, is, the, is the chapter that tells us where Paul landed in Corinth and started building that church. But if you go back a few chapters, you start to see this string of horrible circumstances for Paul. Paul was a man used to hardships. And I mean hardships like beatings. People chasing after him to kill him. People literally tearing off his clothes. And then he gets to Corinthians 18, right? In Acts 18. But before that, he's beaten and stoned so badly, I think in 14, that they leave him for dead. They think he's dead. In another place, they strip his clothes off and they, they smack him probably head to toe with rods. Beat him and beat him severely. In another situation, very close to, to Acts 18, he has to be sent away at, at nighttime because of a violent mob that's after some of his other hearers that's going to be after him. So by the time he gets to Corinth, he's trembling. He's afraid. He comes in weakness. Do you ever think of Paul as like being affected by being, having his skull smashed in with stones? Do you ever think of Paul as as being wounded and hurt and emotionally vulnerable? Because he would go in his heart trying to serve God's gospel and serve God's people and he would get the living bejesus kicked out of him. Please excuse me if bejesus is a bad thing to say. I've never quite understood that word. But the point is, by the time he gets to Corinth, God can tell he needs extra encouragement. And so... Paul hears from the Lord. And this is what he hears in Acts 18. Oh, this is beautiful. Do not be afraid. 
the Lord comes to Paul and tells him, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And this is what God says to him. Listen to the tenderness of this man. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. You know, God can call us into real deep suffering, you know. He, he, there were other times where God did not say to Paul, no one will attack or harm you. But he said, hey, Paul, we're going to get attacked and harmed here. You know, whether he said it consciously to Paul or not or warned him, he let it happen. But there are other times where Paul, where God just, you know, pulls him up on his lap and says, time out, son. Time out. We're going to take a break from this. I know what you can handle. I know what you can't handle. And God knows that about you. He's not just simply seeking to let you guys gut it out on your own. In, in all your various trials of parenting and trying to love one another in the church, trying to evangelize for him, trying to be a good worker at a work where your boss is kicking your butt. He does call you to suffer, but he also has times of great sweetness for you. If you will give yourself to him to trust him, where he pulls you aside and just says, time out, time out. I know you're dust. I know you're frail. God is a tender God. Anyway, it's after this message that Paul stays a year and a half. A year and a half at this church. He's like, okay, nobody's going to attack me. How about I just stay here for a year and a half? Sounds good. Three years, four years. They look like they need 10 years of help, Lord. No one's going to attack me. No, no, I'm sure he, 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 um, he didn't act that way. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, God was working weakness and trial and suffering in Paul. And part of it was so that when he got to Corinth, he would appear before them weak and vulnerable and not rhetorically awesome. But he would be frail because they needed that kind of Paul. They didn't need a Paul beautiful in speech and lofty in strength. And why did they need that? Why did Paul come upon them this way? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He didn't want the credit. He didn't want the prestige of great rhetoric. He wanted people to see Jesus and to treasure him. And he gave himself to this task. And the power of God showed up. I want to I bring up a quote. It's on my phone. I wasn't expecting to do this, but I got it today. I asked for prayer. And my friend uh, Eric Hughes, who's preached before us, sent me this quote. And I hope I'll send it out to you guys if you like it. And you just tell me and maybe we'll put it out in the, in the email this week. This is a beautiful quote from Spurgeon. You cannot serve him in your strength. You can only serve him in the strength that he gives as you need it. Here, take the bread, take the fish and feed the thousands. Never say that is not enough. He will multiply both the bread and the fish as it is broken and consumed. There will be more than you need. Listen, you who profess to be in Christ, you who love him, you have a work to do. God will give you the necessary strength and grace. God loves to use us in our weakness so that his power can be made evident in that weakness. And he gives us the strength that comes from him that people might see Wow, you're a broken, cracked vessel. But you know what? I met God through you. 
I met God. I, I didn't need to meet you so much. I really needed to meet God. And as Paul gave himself to this task, even in his frailty, even in his weakness, the power of God shows up. That's what Paul means by demonstrations of the spirit and of power. Many were regenerated and born again. That's what I believe in everything I've read. And I think the text tells us that's what he means by demonstration of spirit and power. When I first read that, I thought, oh, he came in weakness. He was like stuttering and hard to speak. But then, boom, limbs were restored and blind people were given sight. And all these amazing miracles happened. And they were just like, Paul, you like, you speak with this really bad southern accent. You don't even pronounce your T's and you're really hard to follow. But look, I've got arms again. You know, you must have God on you. But that's not what happened here. And we know that from a few verses earlier. Listen to what Paul says about miraculous signs. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. For Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks seek wisdom, lofty speech, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ. This message of Christ crucified, he says, Christ The power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is not against miracles, but what he cared about wasn't ultimately outward miracles, but inward miracles. We've talked about this before. The body can be healed, but it goes back into the ground again. And so in this verse, the power of God isn't healing a body that's going to have to go back in the ground again. The power of God is seeing men and women moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. That was the power of God that Paul saw. Unbelieving people become believing people. Idolaters become worshipers of the living God. Slaves of Satan become children of God. Lovers of sin become lovers of righteousness. When Paul saw that, he said, oh my goodness, that's the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's still after. Among us, through us, and around us. He wants new life from the dead. And when we do have miracles, which thank God we've seen and they're beautiful, we we need to know that that's... What he's trying to do. He's either trying to grow that new life that's there in us. Or he's trying to call out to a lost and dead world. That there is real life to be found in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And just so there's no confusion. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that even though his rhetoric wasn't perfect. And and he wasn't you know up to the wisdom of those great lofty speakers that they were falling in love with. As a culture, I don't mean Paul and Apollo and Cephas, but this, they weren't, Paul wasn't up to the category of the speakers of the day. He had something much better to give them. And that's what he says in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
Now that last passage there, what no eye has seen, no ear had heard, no heart imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That is usually equated with like what's going to happen after we die, right? Like when you, when you see that verse out of the context of Corinthians, you're thinking, oh wow, that's a great verse for funerals or for giving comfort to folks who've lost loved ones that are now with the Lord or your own hope about what's going to happen when you finally meet God in heaven. All those things are true. That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse is talking about the beauty and the glory and the worth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is crucified for us. That, that it's supposed to resonate like that in our hearts. That we should, if we could see as clear as we should, we should be able to say about the gospel of Christ crucified for us, oh, no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man, the heart of man imagined what you prepared for those who love you. It should be that kind of treasure to us. And this is a... a and this is a wisdom, you know, we know as believers, it's hard to feel that way about the gospel. But listen, the world around us that doesn't know Jesus Christ, they have no chance. It's not just fuzzy to them. They don't hear it, see it, treasure it at all. Here's what the world struggles to hear. A God who loves the world in such a way that that his cross proclaims that we're desperate, guilty sinners condemned to death before his holy justice. That's not wisdom the world wants to hear or receive or treasure. It tells the world that God's great love had to crush his son in order that we might not be crushed as we deserve. It tells the world that the way of greatness is to take up a cross each day and follow Jesus into a life of earthly self-denial, which will often mean suffering for the sake of a greater delight in God. It tells the world that it's a love that cannot be earned by our moral greatness or our religiosity or ethical performance, but can only be received by a simple childlike faith. It tells the world they have nothing in themselves to offer God. Nothing. But that daily they must rely on his strength, his righteousness, his love, his spirit to bring anything of value to him. It tells the world about a God who loves so incomprehensibly, so completely, so eternally that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate those who receive it from him. It's a real alien, foreign kind of love in all kinds of different ways. In short, it tells us the hardest, saddest, most troubling, humbling things about ourselves without God. And it tells us the most exalting, praiseworthy things about a suffering, rejected, crushed, bloody Messiah who alone is our only hope. This is not the wisdom the world can hear and embrace So how does it get to the world? Well, Paul answers in the next verse. He says, these things have been revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God 
See, the world can't hear because no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Again, Paul's coming back to this theme. I'm not teaching you guys in lofty rhetoric. I'm teaching you guys the truth of God, basic, simple words that are true that give life when the Spirit makes them give life. So Paul deals this fatal blow to the wisdom of the age, to these wise speakers. He says the wisdom of Christ and him crucified, it's not only higher and greater than any wisdom this world can offer, it's actually wisdom the world is unable to even accept. Now listen, you might be thinking, wait, 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 I know people who understand the gospel who don't believe in Jesus. He doesn't mean they can't grasp it intellectually. You can ask D.A. Carson, one of the greatest theologians of our time, blah, 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 and he'll tell you there are unbelieving students of the Bible who are atheists who can exegete a passage like this with great intellectual prowess and accuracy, way beyond me. Way beyond probably what any of you, most of you could do. But what they can't do, what only the Holy Spirit can bring about, is to make a person not intellectually understand the gospel, but to treasure it. Like, to treasure it, to think it's beautiful, to think it's glorious, to think it's true, to think it's personally attractive to them. They may be able to describe Christ and him crucified, the substitutionary atonement, but they can't value it as precious. Only the Holy Spirit can allow someone to see that beauty and worth and glory. And to do so in such a degree that that person puts their hope in Christ and leans on him. If this morning you sit in this room treasuring Jesus, not as much as you should, but treasuring him, longing for more of Jesus, if he is your only hope, And you're depending on him to be your righteousness this morning. And and if even though you stumble and know you don't love him as you should, you still love him and you long to love him as you should. Brothers and sisters, that is a miracle of priceless worth. And I know it's, for me, it is, it's, it's so easy to fall away into numbness and man, we are so distracted in our time, I am so much more distracted I feel like, than I've ever been with this thing called the computer and the phone and the interwebs and Facebooks and Twitterings and it's just in streaming services. It just like pours on you and it's just easy to lose sight of this. But that's what the Holy Spirit is able to do to bring someone to Christ. And that's what the Holy Spirit is able to do. To keep someone in Christ. He's able to do it to your friends and neighbors who don't know Jesus. He alone is able to take the words of the gospel that you speak to that person. Even in weakness, right? Even in frailty. That's the only way it got to the Corinthians. With Paul's trembling, fearful, weak speech. But the Spirit of God is able to come in and and make those words living water to that person's soul. To take them from death into life. 
And he's also able to do it day by day by day to his children who need consistent and repeated renewals. They need the glasses taken off and and cleaned again. They need the windshield wipers of the Holy Spirit to get the mug off the windshield of our spiritual car that we are. (coughs) Did that make sense? No. You're not going to say no. So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't have much more lofty wisdom. I, I just have, Lord, would you please make this? It's like my, my conviction in this sermon. I, I wish I could unpack this better. I wish I could say this thing better. But I'm really relying on the Holy Spirit to do a work again, to clean us, to make us see Jesus as just the best, and somebody we want to pursue and give our lives to, and somebody that we're hoping in. So, two questions to leave you with this morning. First, what are you treasuring? What are you treasuring right now? If you consider how you spend your free time, it will tell you something about what you treasure. If you've got free time. (laughs) If you consider how you spend your, at least your dispensable income, we can see more about how we treasure. If we consider who our closest friends are and why we like them as we do, we can find some insight into, into what we treasure. If we consider what we talk about these friends, what we talk, what we talk with these friends about, it will, it will tell us what we treasure. If we consider what we read on social media and what we write on social media, the chat rooms we might be in, it will tell us something about what we value, what we find precious. And, and what we're seeing from Paul today is he's, he's calling this church that are being distracted by, by lesser treasures Beautiful, lofty speech. That was their internet. That was their Facebook. That was their chat room. That was their Netflix streaming service. That was their binge series, you know, to watch on Netflix. He's calling them and saying, no, 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 no. Don't drown in that stuff. Don't drown in that stuff. There's something so much more beautiful that the Holy Spirit wants to keep central to your life. And he will work to keep central to your life. It's Christ and him crucified. What's so great is this church was not doing great at this, right? Like, he's not addressing them about these things because they're just knocking out of the park spiritually. This is a church that's being lulled to sleep. And Paul's like writing them because he's, he's got this idea in his head. God's going to be faithful to you. He's going to confirm you to the end. So I'm going to keep preaching to you, Paul says. I'm going to keep reminding you about the truth because God's going to work through that to keep cleaning you, keep renewing you, keep restoring you through all these distractions. And so what he says is treasure Christ and him crucified above all things. Treasure Christ and him crucified. It's the only thing I care to know among you. It's the only thing I care to talk to you about because it's the most important thing, Paul says. More important than... Video games and internets and movies and work problems and even your children and your marriages. It's more important. Christ and him crucified. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't think about life. We don't think about other things about God either. D.A. Carson tries to qualify what he means by Christ and him crucified. He says, Paul was devoted. Paul was. It does not mean that Paul was devoted to blissful ignorance of anything and everything other than the cross. 
No, what he means is that all he does and teaches is tied to the cross. He can't long talk about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered. And I've asked myself as I read this text again, why is he so like this? And there are probably several reasons, but the, the reason that is really burdening my heart right now is that the cross tells you again and again what we long and need to hear again and again. That God is going to be faithful to you. That despite all the reasons he has to give up on me, and he has all kinds of reasons to give up on me, every day I give him reasons to give up on me. He's not going to. And deep down in my heart, I know that God is holy. And I know that this universe works on a principle of justice. And I know I don't deserve a God who will not give up on me. And neither do you. But the cross tells us that is not getting in the way. And so it's like nuclear dynamite that never ends. It just picks you back up again and again and again. And cleans you off again and again and again. Gives you hope again and again and again. Many, many years after Paul had become a seasoned veteran believer and honestly proclaimed himself as by grace the hardest working apostle, he declared to one of his churches, I have been crucified with Christ. This is years into being a Christian. I have been crucified with Christ. It's still what he's talking about. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul saw the the cross of Christ as that which constantly called him away from hoping or despairing, from hoping or despairing in his own performance, his own righteousness. And it constantly called him to rely on the grace of God for his righteousness. A righteousness that Jesus won for him at the cross. Paul no longer had to earn his way with God. Lord, help us to treasure Christ that way. Paul saw the cross of Christ as the means by which Jesus proved his affectionate love for Paul. It was through the cross that Jesus, Paul says, gave himself for me. God, open our eyes to see Jesus gave himself for us on the cross afresh. Paul saw the cross, and in that cross he saw that Jesus paid for his transformation from a lover of self to a lover of God. And so Paul saw the cross of Christ as that which set him free from this old life as a slave to the law and a slave to sin. And he no longer wanted to live for himself. The cross had paid for Jesus to now live in him and be his power. And be the one he could depend on for strength to live for Jesus. Paul saw the cross and he saw what what was being modeled for him as the life that he was to live. Not to atone for sins, but to be a faithful disciple. To pick up his own cross and find that in dying to self and living for Jesus, there was real joy. There was real delight. There was real strength. There was real hope. Lord, help us to see the cross is calling us to a life of joy as we seek to die to ourselves. Lord, help us. Only you can open our eyes to this, God. 
I can't. My preaching. So as I worked in this passage, I was just forced to ask myself again, do I treasure Christ? I asked you, what do you treasure? And I'd ask myself that. Do I treasure Jesus as the greatest wisdom in the universe? Christ is him crucified. And the answer was, not enough. By a long shot. And so I'm here with you to ask for that, that renewal and that re-cleansing through his spirit's work among us. Boy, there's a whole bunch of stuff I am skipping. <laughs> that is really good to skip right now. No, no, it's, it, I think God's helped me here. <laughs> Kind of my last and related question is not just what are you treasuring, but this last one is, is what are you depending on? What are you depending on? Yes, we're called to, to have our quiet times, our devotionals. We're called to remember and reflect on and pray and, and seek to share Jesus. We're called to confess our sins to one another and to, to love one another and to give forgiveness and ask forgiveness. We're called to do these things. God will not do these things for us. But even as we seek to do these things, even as we try to cooperate with God and him cleaning the muck off our windshield, maybe by deciding that I'm, I'm just going to spend way less time on the sports chat room that I might spend time in, or throw my phone in the pond for six months, I'm going to make that big effort. Or whatever it might be with you, that you would say, man, I I need to to make more room for for Jesus, to treasure him. I need to think about him more and concentrate on him more. As a husband, I need to, to make more room for my wife to treasure him more by giving her space and time. I don't know what it will be for you guys to increase your intake of Jesus and him crucified. But as you do that, don't make the mistake. Lord, help me not make the mistake of thinking I can work that out in my own effort. That's, that's like opposite of everything Paul's been saying. We're weak. We're frail. We can't do it on our own. We have to have the Spirit's work in us. As you share Jesus with other people, don't put your hope in your perfect timing. Don't put your hope in your ability to be perfectly courageous. Don't put your hope in your perfect testimony of your experience with God. Don't put your hope in your wise ideas about cookouts and friendship building until you share the... I'm not saying don't do those things and don't try to smartly and wisely and gently and respectfully share Jesus. But folks, it's, it's not your technique. It's not my technique. It's not my courage. It, none of that stuff's going to save people. It's getting this simple message out of my mouth, into their ears, so the Spirit can work even through my frailty and my weakness and my lack of courage and my struggles. And my I was at uh, a place the other day with Bob Grove, and I was sitting down with this guy, and I was like, well, it was the Frederick Rescue Mission, and they have this lunchtime thing where you can go in and eat lunch and try to share Jesus or talk about Jesus with people. And man, I just get so scared when I sit down and I try to start sharing with somebody. It's just like... A million questions. I feel like I got to put on like seven more deodorant rolls, and, uh, and and I'm just like, 
am I going to say too much? Is it, is it time? Is it time to say it now? And um, this is going to seem so... And, and if you listen to me, I'm so wormy. I'm like, uh, oh man, I'm so sorry for talking to you right now and looking at you with, with my eyeballs into your eyeballs. Please forgive me for, for even raising my head or even this voice is so awful. I'm so sorry. And please forgive me that I breathe. I shouldn't be breathing. I shouldn't be breathing near you. That's like what I'm like when I evangelize. It's like... I'm trying so hard to get out of the way and not be polite that I'm becoming this issue, you know? But the one thing I can do inside is say, God help me! I don't know what to do! I don't know how to do this! Like, that's the one thing I can do. I can do that so good. I can, I'm so good at, Lord! Like, I've got that down now. And you know what? Like, he's so good. All of a sudden, it's like, so, I just listened to this guy's story for like a half hour. It was the craziest story. It was crazy. Poor guy. And it didn't even sound like the guy had anything there, like, to hear this. Like, you know, we're talking like, and I don't mean this in a deprecating way, but like, we're talking like aluminum antenna crazy, you know, like, out of his... and. Just like he's from the planet Zoran and, and and not quite that level, but you get my point. But you know what? I was just convicted. These are words of life. God has commanded me to proclaim them. It's up to his spirit to use them. And I, the, there was a miracle for me was just getting the words out and saying, Jesus Christ saved me. He convicted me that I was a selfish man who needed a savior. And he changed my life and he has saved me for eternity. And now I have hope. And I just want to share that hope with you. Xenon from planet X12. <laughs> I just want to share that hope with you. And if you'd asked me five minutes before that, there was just no way that was going to come out of my mouth. But I cried out to God and he answered. And I don't think that's any different than crying out to God for help in front of a computer screen you know you shouldn't be looking at. Work you need to be given to. Or crying out to God when you're tempted to be angry at your kid in a way you shouldn't be angry. It's just, it's the same principle. Lord, I am weak. I am not strong. You are. Please help. I will trust you. You do help. You are good. That is magic. Like that is what it's about every single day in discipleship. Lord, you call me to follow you. I can't do it on my own. I can do it with you. Please help me. Like that, That's what it is. I, I don't know. A, a more complex, more important theology than that. So as we close, could I ask the band to come up? I just want to move into worship and, and ask you guys just to, to consider praying right now, silently in your seat. Or you can stand and pray. But I'd just like to invite you to just pray. A couple of things. But before you pray, I want to put this promise in front of you. Do we have that verse? He will confirm you to the end. Do we have it, Rebecca? God is faithful. By whom he will confirm you to the end, guiltless. I know you've got it back there. I did see it. Uh, it it's 1 Corinthians 1, 9, I believe. But it should be just a couple of slides up at the very end of the, the main message. 
this, this promise. I want to put this promise in front of you so that when you go into prayer right now, you go in with this promise. And I'd just like to invite you to ask the Lord to examine your heart and say, Lord, show me the ways I am tempted or I am just bottoming out maybe to displace Christ as my treasure, to displace the gospel and his righteousness as my hope. Show me ways I'm doing that. And please, Lord, clean me. Please give me fresh grace this morning that through your Holy Spirit, I might begin to see you again as the treasure you are. As I should. And this is a continuum, right? None of us are, are perfect and none of us are perfectly awful in this. But if you sense, God, I want more. I need more. I need to see you better. I need to treasure you more than I do. Just, just bring that to him. But bring this promise in with you too. Like, Lord, you, you're going to do this for me. You're going to confirm me to the end. And man, if you are just like perfect, <laughs> and pray for somebody else in this room that might need the Lord. But I bet, I bet most of us are longing for more of Jesus. So let's just spend a few minutes just asking God. Help us see you. Help us treasure you as we should. Help us depend on you as we should.